Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the fourth and final installment of Christmas with Meister Eckhart. Um, at least for this year, um, 2023. You know, there are only four Christmas sermons, but perhaps we could continue this little tradition in some fashion next year. Um, spending Christmas with Eckhart in some way. There are a lot of other sermons, after all, um, if you guys would be interested in that, because I have for sure enjoyed doing this little thing every week. It's been a beautiful way of, <clears throat> of just getting into to a, to the Christmas mood in a different way by thinking a little more deeply about some of the uh, implications and, and theological, mystical aspects of this holiday, which is, of course, as we have said, for Eckhart, the birth of the sun, the birth of the word, not only in time as a human being, but in the ground of the soul and the ground of God and the eternal now, in the eternal present beyond time, where our true home lies and into which we must um, break through, detach ourselves from all things and become unknowing so that we can receive that birth, um, which, you know, as we've seen, has been the main theme running through all these sermons that we have read. Um, he has tackled this theme in different ways from different perspectives, sometimes more philosophically, sometimes more perhaps theologically or mystically. But that has been the main theme of, of Christmas that Eckhart has explored. Again, I will say this, that um, this will not be an introduction to Eckhart or his thought or his thoughts on Christmas necessarily. If you want that, then go watch the, the first episode in the series 
or my full video on Eckhart and his philosophy, which I, again, I will leave a card to up here and some links probably in the description too. So for the final time, we're gonna light the fourth candle on what is now today Christmas Eve. This was a very strange match. I'm gonna use another one because I don't wanna accidentally burn the house down or something. Here we go. Let's see if I can do this this time as well. Nope. Uh, okay, sure. I don't know when you're watching this, but here for me it is currently Christmas Eve. And in Sweden, Christmas Eve is when most people sort of celebrate Christmas properly. This is like the main day for us here in Sweden, which is a bit different from other places. Perhaps for, for most people around the world, um, the main celebration would be tomorrow on December 25th, which I guess is when this video will be going up. Um, but in Sweden, we have this tradition of, of celebrating on the 24th on Christmas Eve. Families will gather, um, eat food together, watch Mickey Mouse and Donald, it's a weird tradition, we watch Donald Duck at, at three o'clock every Christmas Eve, like literally every Swedish family does the same thing. Um, and it's one of those strange and funny things that we just do because we've always done it. Um, and it's interesting because as many of you know, Sweden is often seen as one of the most secularized countries in the world and yet Christmas is incredibly popular, right? Everyone loves and celebrates Christmas. And, and there is food for thought there, right? What, what's going on there? And we can perhaps see in that a lot of, of what religion and, and rituals are about, which I've talked about in many of my videos, which is this, this very profound social function that these things have. It's about coming together as a society, as a family. Um, it's about like, for, look here, we have these candles and, and lighting candles and lights, you know, fireplaces, you know, all these kinds of, uh, there's a lot of this imagery of light around Christmas, you know, the Christmas tree and so on. And so in many ways, I think Christmas is also about bringing light into a very dark period of the year. And especially in Sweden and Scandinavia, it gets really dark, uh, you know, around this time of year, as I've said. So... For people here, even though they might not be devout Christians or practicing Christians, Christmas becomes a very important time of year because it is a time that is associated with many of these things of, of light and love and family and coming together as a family. Uh, for some people, it's the only time that they get to see their extended family, for instance. Um, and so it becomes a very profound and very important day for a lot of people, regardless if you have a connection to the um, religious mythology behind um, the holiday as such. But for, for Eckhart, which is what we're talking about today, um, that uh, mythology or that story about Christ and, and or Jesus is, of course, very central. Uh, but as always, for him, it's not primarily about the, the physical, historical person, but rather about the metaphysical and mystical meanings of, of what's going on here, the birth of the Son. So... Today we're going to read the fourth sermon, 
Again, using the complete mystical works of Meister Eckhart, translated by Maurice O'Connor Walsh. And Sermon 4. It's hard to say, but Sermon 4 might be my favorite. I think Sermon 4 is just incredibly beautiful. There are some um, para paragraphs in here uh, that I, I think are just stunning. And, and you'll see, hopefully, probably you'll see what I mean. Um, there is some imagery in, in this sermon and ways that he expresses these things that I think is just wonderful. Um, so, without further ado, let's start this final sermon. The Bible verse that is discussed, that opens this thing, is Luke 2.42. Eckhart says, We read in the Gospel that when our Lord was 12 years old, he went with Joseph and Mary to the temple in Jerusalem. And when they left, Jesus stayed behind in the temple without their knowing. When they reached home and missed him, they sought him among acquaintances, among their kindred and amidst the throng, and they could not find him. They had lost him in the crowd, and so they had to go back to where they had come from. And when they got back to their starting point, the temple, they found him. So this is the famous story from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus, Mary and Joseph lose Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple, and they come back and they find Jesus, and he's preaching to the rabbis there. And you know, he knows more about the Jewish law than the rabbis themselves. A very famous story about the childhood of Jesus. And Eckhart has a very profound reading of this section, which he clarifies in the next paragraph here. And so in truth, if you would find this noble birth, you must leave the crowd and return to the source and ground whence you came. All the powers of the soul and all their works, these are the crowd. Memory, understanding and will, they all diversify you, and therefore you must leave them all. Sense perceptions, imagination, or whatever it may be, that in which you find or seek to find yourself. After that, you may find this birth, but not otherwise, believe me. He was never yet found among friends, nor among kindred or acquaintances. There, rather, one loses him altogether. Accordingly, the question arises whether a man can find this birth in any things which, though divine, are yet brought in from without through the senses such as any ideas about God as being good, wise, compassionate, or anything the intellect can conceive in itself that is in fact divine, whether a man can find this birth in all these. In fact, he cannot. For although all this is good and divine, it is all brought in from without through the senses. But all must well up from within, out of God, if this birth is to shine forth truly and clearly, and all your activity must cease, and all your powers must serve his ends, not your own. If this work is to be done, God alone must do it, and you must just suffer it to be. Where you truly go out from your will and your knowledge, God with his knowledge surely and willingly goes in and shines there clearly. Where God will thus show himself, there your knowledge cannot subsist and is of no avail. Do not imagine that your reason can grow to the knowledge of God. If God is to shine divinely in you, your natural light cannot help toward this end. Instead, it must become pure nothing 
and go out of itself altogether, and then God can shine in with his light, and he will bring back in with him all that you forsook, and a thousand times more, together with a new form to contain it all. Of this, we have a parable in the gospel. When our Lord had spoken in such friendly fashion to the Gentile woman at the well, she left her pitcher and ran to the town, announcing to the people that the true Messiah had come. The people, not believing her words, went out with her and saw for themselves. Then they said to her, Now we believe, not because of your words. We believe rather because we have seen him ourselves. So in truth, no creaturely skill, nor your own wisdom, nor all your knowledge can enable you to know God divinely. For you to know God in God's way, your knowing must become a pure unknowing and a forgetting of yourself and all creatures. There was a long section, of course, but he uses this, this uh, story in the Bible. Joseph and Mary loses their son, literally, right, in the temple in Jerusalem, among the crowd of people, and they seek him on, amongst their friends and their kin. They cannot find him anywhere, right? So they have to go back to where they started, to the temple. And, of course, what this signifies to Eckhart is this going back to where we came from, right? Back to our ground, the ground of the soul. So forsaking, we forget the, the birth of the sun that's taking place within us all the time. We sort of lose that in, in the crowd, in, in, the, in the sense perceptions and all these things that we experience in our lives, whether it be you know, good or bad or anything, right? Any multiplicity, all these things that we experience in our lives, we lose that sun in all of that. So we have to go away from all that, even our friends and our kin, and go back to the temple. And the temple, of course, represents the ground, the soul, the, the true, our true home. And, and there, and of course, we've been through a lot of these themes that he discusses there, we become unknowing and God can sort of pour his grace into us because we are completely passive and receptive. And then there is the other Bible quote that he uses here, which is that uh, where he meets the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And, and the, the sort of message of that scene is that when she goes and tells the people in her town, they don't believe her before they go and see Jesus for themselves. And so again, that's a sort of message to say, her words representing our own kind of knowledge and our intellect, what we can imagine or think, that can never make us truly know. We have to experience for ourselves, right? So a clear, again, one of the, the, the primary sort of features of mysticism. And sometimes people don't want to call Eckhart a mystic, right? And there are reasons, you know, people have reasons for this. They want to say he's a theologian or a philosopher, not necessarily a mystic, perhaps a mystical philosopher, if anything. But here, I think, is one of those uh, signs that, that Eckhart very much has a kind of mystical epistemology, right? The only way to truly know is to unknow. The only way to truly know is to experience yourself, you know, rather than using your intellect or your sense perceptions or your knowledge, your worldly knowledge, because that can never truly lead you to God. So Eckhart continues here. Now you might say, well, sir, what use is my intellect then, if it is supposed to be empty and functionless? Is that the best thing for me to do, to raise my mind to an unknowing knowledge that can't really exist? For if I knew anything at all, it would not be ignorance, and I should not be empty and bare. Am I supposed to be in total darkness? Certainly. You cannot do better than to place yourself in darkness and in unknowing. Oh, sir, must everything go then, and is there no turning back? No, indeed, 
by rights, there is no returning. But what is this darkness? What do you call it? What is its name? The only name it has is potential receptivity, which certainly does not lack being, nor is it deficient, but it is the potential of receptivity in which you will be perfected. That is why there is no turning back from it. But if you do turn back, that is not on account of any truth, but because of something else, the senses, the world, or the devil. And if you give way to the impulse to turn back, you are bound to lapse into sin. And you may backslide so far as to fall eternally. Therefore, there is no turning back, but only a pressing forward, so as to attain and achieve this possibility. It never rests until it is filled with all being, just as matter never rests till it's filled with every possible form, so too intellect never rests until it is filled to its capacity. So, he says, the only name that this darkness that we are to achieve has is potential receptivity. Right? And, you know, I, I don't think I need to explain this again, right? It's this, this complete passivity where all our individuality and sort of active aspects of our soul, our mind, is completely shut off, right? We're completely, you know, again, we might, you know to compare, we might be able to sort of compare this to certain aspects of Indic thought, not just Indic thought, a lot of uh, different philosophical schools where we talk about sort of pure subjectivity. I guess you could say that, like the pure I, the pure... The pure self that is just the 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 experiencer the the I being aware without there being anything necessarily that it is aware of you know just pure awareness receptive awareness right if you can reach that then maybe well Eckhart says then necessarily God will shower his his, his being upon us or, or we will experience that in a direct way unmediated way Something that was always there, of course, which is, again, this birth of the sun that he's constantly talking about. On this point, a pagan master says, Nature has nothing swifter than the heavens, for they surpass all else in swiftness. Yet surely the mind of man outstrips them by its speed. If only it were to retain its potentiality intact, remaining undefiled and unrent by base and gross things, it would outstrip the highest heaven, never ceasing till it reached the summit, there to be fed and cherished by the greatest good. As for what it profits you to pursue this possibility, to keep yourself empty and bare, just following and tracking this darkness and unknowing without turning back, it contains the chance to gain him who is all things. And the more barren you are of self and unwitting of all things, the nearer you are to him. Of this barrenness it is said in Jeremiah, I will lead my beloved into the wilderness and will speak to her in her heart. The true word of eternity is spoken only in solitude, where a man is a desert and alien to himself in a multiplicity. For this desolate self-estrangement the prophet longed, saying, Who will give me the wings of a dove that I may fly away and be at rest? Where does one find peace and rest? There, truly, where there is rejection, desolation, and estrangement from all creatures. Therefore, David says, I would rather be rejected and spurned in the house of my God than dwell with great honor and wealth in the tavern of sinners. Pretty profound uh, uh, paragraph here, I think. Uh, talking about the, the, the desert again, this imagery that he uses in, in some of the other sermons too. Um, saying that God is him who is all things, right? Pretty 
profound uh, language there. Uh, the more barren you are of self and of unwitting of all things, the nearer you are to him. So, so many of these re recurring themes in all these sermons, right? You are just to rid yourself of all your sense of self, all multiplicity, all outside things. That is how you get to this, this uh, place. He continues, Now you might say, Oh, sir, is it really always necessary to be barren and estranged from everything, outward and inward? The powers and their work, must that all go? It is a grievous matter for God to leave a man without support, as the prophet says, Woe is me that my exile is prolonged. If God prolongs my exile here without either enlightening or encouraging me to work within me, as your teaching implies. If a man is in such a state of pure nothingness, it is not better to do something to beguile the gloom and desolation, such as praying or listening to sermons or doing something else that is virtuous so as to help himself. A similar question to one of the questions that were asked in the last sermon, right? Um, but with a slightly different flavor, I would say. So Eckhart uh, replies here, No, be sure of this. Absolute stillness for as long as possible is best for all of you. You cannot exchange this state for any other without harm. That is certain. You would like to partly prepare yourself and partly let God prepare you, but this cannot be. You cannot think or desire to prepare yourself more quickly than God can move in to prepare you. But even if it were shared so that you did the preparing and God did the working or the infusion, which is impossible, then you should know that God must act and pour himself into you the moment he finds you ready. Do not imagine that God is like a human carpenter who works or not as he likes, who can do or leave undone as he wishes. It is different with God. As and when God finds you ready, he has to act, to overflow into you, just as when the air is clear and pure, the sun has to burst forth and cannot refrain. It would surely be a grave defect in God if he performed no great works in you and did not pour great goodness into you whenever he found you thus empty and bare. This is a really interesting quote, I think, because it seems to imply, and this might be one of those sort of controversial aspects of Eckhart's thought, is that it seems to say that God's, um, what's, the use, what's the language he uses there? God must act, pour himself into you. God must do that. He must necessarily do that. So um, and even though he, he does that by his will, because God has a will that he acts by, of course, he seems to say that this is not like a human being wants something and then does it, right? He has to do this. And this was a common idea in certain philosophical um, schools, right, or philosophical um, currents at this time, right, this debate over whether the creation of the world by God was necessary. Uh, and there are a lot of philosophers in, in, like, for example, the Islamic world that held that idea, such as Ibn Sina or Avicenna, very famously, right, God, just like the sun has to emit light, God has to create. It's just part of his nature. So it's not something that he sort of like a human being would like choose to do, like now I'm going to create the world. But it's just something that his being just does that automatically. And that was controversial because many people felt like, well, you're taking sort of uh, agency away from God. Um, but another Islamic philosopher that had a similar idea were, was, of course, Ibn Rushd or Averroes. And Averroes was incredibly influential and, and widely read and studied in medieval Europe by people like Thomas Aquinas 
and of course by people like Meister Eckhart. Eckhart would have been deeply um, aware of, of uh, Ibn Rushd and his works, especially his commentaries on Aristotle, which was sort of his major work. And so, even though, you know, not, not saying that this is like exclusive to the Islamic thinkers, but we can see that this is a kind of theme, at least this is what I think when I read this, right, it's this idea of God's necessity. God not necessarily uh, creates the world, or in this case, God must necessarily pour himself into you when you become receptive to him. It's just something that happens naturally or automatically almost. Eckhart says, In the same sense, the masters write that in the very instant the material substance of a child is ready in the mother's womb, God at once pours into the body its living spirit, which is the soul, the body's form. It is one instant, the being ready and the pouring in. When nature reaches her highest point, God gives grace. The very instant the spirit is ready, God enters without hesitation or delay. In the Book of Secrets, it says that our Lord declared to mankind, I stand at the door, knocking and waiting. Whoever lets me in, with him I will sup. And here, I think, is one of the most profound and, and beautiful sections of this whole sermon, and really of all these sermons, in my opinion. Eckhart says, You need not seek him here or there. He is no further than the door of your heart. There he stands patiently, awaiting whoever is ready to open up and let him in. No need to call to him from afar. He can hardly wait for you to open up. He longs for you a thousand times more than you long for him. The opening and the entering are a single act. That's just incredible stuff, right? Imagery, God is waiting just standing right there at your door the whole time, right, waiting for you to open the door. Also reminds us of like certain Sufi sayings and Sufi poems, right? Um, this, this incredible closeness of God. And this, I love this last sentence, the opening and the entering are the, the, the same act, or the opening and the entering are a single act. Just such, such great imagery. It reminds me of, of um, that other most famous of Eckhart's quotes, right? The eye with which you see God is the same eye with which God sees you. And here the entering, or the opening, when you open the door to let God in, that is the same act as him entering into you. Right? So it's sort of collapsing that distinction between the one opening and the one going in. It's really, at that point in the ground, it's all one. I was going to say it's one thing, but it's not a thing. It's all one, let's just say. Right? And this is just a beautiful expression of that. He continues, now you might say, how can that be? I can't feel him. Pay attention. Your being aware of him is not in your power, but in his. When it suits him, he shows himself, and he can hide when he wishes. This is what Christ meant when he said to Nicodemus, the spirit breathes where it will. You hear its voice, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. In so speaking, he contradicted himself. You hear yet know not. By hearing, we come to know. Christ meant that by hearing, it is imbibed or absorbed, as if to say, you receive it, but unawares. You should know, God cannot leave anything void or unfilled. God and nature cannot endure that anything should be empty or void. And so, even if you think you can't feel him and are wholly empty of him, that is not the case. For if there were anything empty under heaven, 
whatever it may be, great or small, the heavens would either draw it up to themselves or else, bending down, would have to fill it with themselves. God, the Lord of nature, does not allow that anything be empty or void. Therefore, stand still and do not waver from your emptiness, for at this time you can turn away, never to turn back again. Right, so here he talks about that theme again that, that we talked about earlier. God must pour himself into the empty void. Um, there's this saying, right? Nature hates a, a, nature hates a void, right? And a, a common opinion in old philosophy, I think in Aristotelianism, I'm not an expert on Aristotelianism, as you probably um, um, sort of deduced from these uh, sermons or my commentaries on them, but isn't it Aristotle that basically says that, that there is no void, right? That the void is impossible, there's always something, whether it be air or whatever it is, I, I, there is no void at all, which we know today course isn't really true because atoms are mostly void but you know we can go deeper into that too perhaps there's like a quantum field which would not be a void anyway um Eckhart says that God cannot allow a void so when there's emptiness <clears throat> in this case like the soul God has to enter he says now you might say well sir since you're always assuming that someday this birth will occur in me that the sun will be born in me. Now, can I have any sign by which to recognize that this has taken place? Right, so it gets to the, the meat, of, uh, meat of the discussion here, right? How, how do I know if this birth has taken place? We know from before, of course, that the birth has always taken place because it's taken place in the eternal present. But how can you know that you have sort of reached this birth? How can you come to know this birth? I, that's how I read, that's how I interpret what he's asking here. Yes, indeed. There are three certain signs. I will tell you just one of them. I am often asked if a man can reach the point where he is no longer hindered by time, multiplicity, or matter. Assuredly, once this birth has really occurred, no creatures can hinder you. Instead, they will all direct you to God and this birth. Take lightning as an analogy. Whatever it strikes, whether tree, beast, or man, it turns at once toward itself. A man with his back toward it is instantly turned round to face it. If a tree had a thousand leaves, they would all turn right side up toward the stroke. So it is with all in whom this birth occurs. They are promptly turned towards this birth with all they possess, be it never so earthly. In fact, what used to be a hindrance now helps you most. Your face is so fully turned towards this birth that no matter what you see or hear, you can get nothing but this birth from all things. All things become simply God to you, for in all things you know it is only God, just as a man who stares long at the sun sees the sun in whatever he afterwards looks at. If this is lacking, this looking for and seeking God in all and sundry, then you lack this birth. Right. So when this birth happens, it's very obvious, is what I think he's saying, right? It's like the lightning strike. You cannot, um, you, you can't miss it, right? It's, it's obvious. Everything turns towards this. It becomes this all-consuming all thing. And then after you've experienced this, 
everything becomes this birth. Everything becomes God, right? Again, we go back to this fana baqa thing, right? Um, you annihilate yourself in God, but then you return to multiplicity, and now you see everything as God. Wherever you turn, there is the face of God. All things become simply God to you, for you know it is only God. So when you've experienced this birth, when you've come to that point where you, you, you've, you've, this birth has occurred in you, so to speak, then you start to see God everywhere. Everything becomes the divine. There is nothing but God. You're completely consumed by this vision of God as being all things, all of reality. That's how I read what he's saying here. He continues, now you might ask, ought anyone so placed to practice penance? Does he lose anything by dropping penitential exercises? Pay attention. Penitential exercises, among other things, were instituted for a particular purpose. Whether it be fasting, watching, praying, kneeling, being disciplined, wearing hair shirts, lying hard, or whatever it may be, the reason for all this is because the body and flesh are always opposed to spirit. The body is often too strong for the spirit, and there's a real fight between them, an unceasing struggle. So, I, th I think it's pretty obvious, but he's saying that all these outer practices, just like we discussed in the last sermon, all these are to sort of balance this um, body-spirit uh, dichotomy within us, right? To, to, to tame the body, not let the body be that which rules our spirit, rather the other way around. So he continues, he says, Here in the world, the body is bold and strong, for it is at home. The world helps it. The earth is its fatherland. It is helped by all its kin, food, drink, soft living. All is opposed to spirit. The spirit is an alien here, but in heaven are its kin, its whole race. There it has good friends if it strives for there and makes its home there. And so, in order to succor the spirit in this alien realm, and to impede the flesh somewhat in this strife, lest it should conquer the spirit, we put on it the bridle of penitential practices, thus curbing it so that the spirit can resist it. Right, so we just clarified what I just said before. All this is done to bring it under control. But if you would capture and curb it in a thousand times better fashion, then put on it the bridle of love. With love you overcome it most surely. With love you load it most heavily. Therefore, God lies in wait for us with nothing so much as with love. For love resembles the fisherman's hook. The fisherman cannot get the fish till it is caught on the hook. Once it takes the hook, he is sure of the fish. Twist and turn as it may, this way or that, he is assured of his catch. And so I say of love, he who is caught by it has the strongest of bonds, and yet a pleasant burden. He who has taken up this sweet burden fares further and makes more progress than by all the harsh practices any men use. And, too, he can cheerfully bear and endure all that befalls him, whatever God inflicts on him, and can also cheerfully forgive whatever evil is done to him. Nothing brings you closer to God or makes God so much your own as the sweet bond of love. A man who has found this way need seek no other. He who hangs on this hook 
is caught so fast that foot and hand, mouth, eyes and heart, and all that is man's belongs only to God. Here, love makes its triumphant um, entrance here, right? Love, which is this incredibly recurring theme in all of, a lot of mysticism. Sufism is one of them. Christian mysticism is another one. Love here becomes the ultimate path to God, right? Love represents that, that direct path to the, to the divine, right? However much we may pray or do all these penitential practices, if we can find that true love, which is at the core of our relationship to God, which is the core of reality in many ways, if we can sort of be in tune with that love and, and be that love, then that is the best way to reach God. And very, very profound and strong imagery here. He compares love to the fisherman's hook, right? Very, almost like violent um, imagery here. The hook that, that catches the fish. Once you are caught by the hook of love, there is no, there is no going back, right? Once you're caught by that hook, you can, as he says it, however much you may twist and turn and try to go to and get away, it's, you know, you're done for. You've been, you know, you're caught by the hook of love, just like the moth. In, in Atar's Conference of the Birds, he flies into the flame of the candle and just burns, just disappears, dissipates into the flame. And this is, of course, love of God, not necessarily love of spouse or love, you know, worldly love. But, um, and I may be reading or sort of projecting things onto Eckhart here, but I think, I think I'm doing so not without reason, is that love is one in a certain sense, right? That yes, it is love of God, but love of God is also love of your children, right? Or love of your family, love of your fellow man. It's the same love. It's the same love manifest and expressed in different ways. Um, the last sermon talked about um, the importance of outward actions. You know, you can be annihilated in God as much as you want, but if that doesn't make you love your neighbor and give to charity and, and take care of the, those who are in need and give to the poor and so on, then what's the use, right? And that's love. That's all love, right? It's love of your fellow man. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same love. That is the same love with which we love God. And we love God by doing those things. That's how I understand this, right? We love God by loving our fellow man. We love God by giving to the poor. We love God by unconditionally loving the people in our lives and, and giving to them and forgiving them, right? He talks about forgiveness here and forgiveness is, of course, very important to Jesus too and all of Christianity. We forgive each other because we love. And that is the path, that is the true path to God when we can really plunge into that love and really live that love which is the true foundation of reality in some way. It's, it's actually identical to the ground, which we will maybe see a hint of very soon here. So that's why I also think this, this sermon is so profound, is that it brings up love in such a profound way, as the sort of the key in many ways to experiencing this birth, at least as a sort of best way to do so. And there's so much we can talk about surrounding love, which we have just done, but there's, even though I've talked about it now for a couple of minutes, there's so much more we can say about it. Um, 
But to me, it's, it's of course not just about loving God and God loving us, but about this, this larger context where, God, where love is one. And love is not only felt for God, but, but experienced and lived by, by extending it to those around us and to the world in many ways too. He who hangs on this hook, just to read the last sentence again, he who hangs on this hook, the hook of love, is caught so fast that foot and hand, mouth, eyes and heart, and all that is man's, belongs only to God. We saw earlier that, of course, when you, when you realize this birth, everything becomes God. You see God everywhere. So, of course, if you love, if you love God with all your heart, and then you realize that all of this is God. When you look into the eyes of an orphan, in a certain sense, you're looking into the eyes of God, right? Because there is only God. But of course, you need to be aware of in what way you're not looking at God at the same time, because you're also looking at the world of multiplicity, which is nothingness. But if you know in what way you're also looking at God, then of course, you will love that person or that whatever it may be. You love them unconditionally, because it's all God at the end of the day. Eckhart continues, he says, Therefore, you cannot better prevail over this foe and prevent him from harming you than by love. This foe, I would assume, is, is the body and its sort of fleshly desires and all these um, negative things that we, or attachments that we have to the world, for example. Therefore, it is written, Love is as strong as death and as hard as hell. Death separates soul from body, but love separates all things from the soul. It will not tolerate what is not God or God's. Whoever is caught in this net, whoever walks in this way, whatever he does is all one. Whether he does anything or nothing is of no account. And yet the least action or practice of such a man is more profitable and fruitful to himself and all men and more pleasing to God than all the works of others who, though free from mortal sin, are inferior to him in love. Very strong words here, really emphasizing that this love is the strongest and most powerful thing of all. Whatever he does is all one, the person who is absorbed in this love. His rest is more useful than another's labor. Therefore, just watch for this hook so as to be blessedly caught for the more you are caught, the more you are free. Just incredible quote there, right? <laughs> this paradox that he uses, I think, is also so powerful. The more you are caught by the hook of love, the more you are actually free. That we may be thus caught and freed, and may he help us who is love itself. Amen. I think, hopefully you can see, why I think this particular sermon is so incredibly beautiful. There are so many paragraphs and quotes and sentences in the sermon that I think are just so striking, so profoundly beautiful. Um, especially some of those sections talking about that closeness of God, right? right? Waiting right outside the door, just waiting for us to open and then collapsing that distinction between us and God by saying that the opening and the entering is the same act. And then also, and then also this way he talks about love as the sort of ultimate expression of of of, um, of divinity, 
a relationship to divinity. Um, and at the end he says that he, he identifies God with love. God is love itself. Um, which is not something like we haven't heard before, that you know, God is love is like a very common thing. But with all that in mind that we've talked about, um, including the extent to which love sort of also extends to our actions and not just this particular relationship between the human and God, but also how that, um, um, how that informs our entire being and our entire um, sort of existence and, and being in the world to ourselves and to other things around us. It just becomes a very profound and, and beautiful sermon in many ways. And especially you know, when we've gone through all these sermons and, and this theme of the birth of the Son, which represents this innermost experience of, of the presence of God, the, the, the oneness of, of the ground of the soul and the ground of God. And all these sermons have sort of circulated around that theme in different ways like the planet circling around the sun, right? taken it from different perspectives, looked at, asked different questions. Um, and when we have all that in mind, and then we get to this part, and he ends it with this incredibly strong message about love. That love is the ultimate, just the ultimate thing, but then also, which of course strengthens that even more by saying that God literally is love. God is love itself. And I think... What better way to end uh, these series of sermons? Um, and what a beautiful message on Christmas. Because to many people, of course, around the world, Christmas is very much about love, about loving family, about loving those around you, about giving. Giving is a, is a kind of love. Um, one of the things people associate most with, most with Christmas is that we give presents to each other, right? And not just within our family, but also um, a lot of people will really emphasize you know, giving away to charity, giving to the poor. So Christmas is very much a, a, a holiday about love, and in which love is a, very, is a very central theme. And so for that reason, it becomes especially fitting the way that Eckhart ends this fourth sermon by so profoundly diving into that ocean of love and explaining it in such a beautiful way. And in such a divine way. So I think, again, that's just an incredibly fitting way to end this, uh, this fourth sermon. An incredibly fitting way to end this series, which we have uh, been calling Christmas with Meister Eckhart. Um, again, I've really enjoyed reading these with you. And I've really enjoyed seeing the response. Of course, as you've noticed, they're not the most well-performing videos in terms of views. But the response to those real ones out there who've been watching has been amazing. And it's been really wonderful to share this uh, with you. Um, I hope this has been some kind of light in the dark December season uh, and that it's made your, your holiday season or Christmas season um, a little bit more meaningful in some way. It certainly has for me. Um, and, you know, at, at this point, there, I guess there's not much more to say than I hope everyone out there is, is doing well, that your month is meaningful, 
that you have a good holiday season. And I would like to wish all of you out there a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Winter Solstice, whatever it is that you are celebrating or not celebrating. I hope um, you experience some of that light in your life, which many people associate with Christmas, and that love can play a role in your life in a way that it also does for so many people on Christmas. So I hope that that love, which to Eckhart is always present everywhere at all times, um, is, is apparent to you, that it plays a role in your life in some way. Again, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. I look forward to seeing you in future videos. So I'll see you next time. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.